Hello and welcome. Greetings from the Offensive Security Group here at Secure IT 360, coming at you with a new episode of the Cyber Threat Perspective. Uh, it is Friday, so it's time for our week in review. And just so you know, if you're new here, uh, every week our offensive security team is tracking, researching, analyzing uh, various aspects of the cyber world, including like vulnerabilities, exploits, and bad actors for the purpose of keeping you up to date on uh, on different stuff that's going on in the industry. So the goal here is to make you a little bit more prepared today than you were yesterday. So today you've got Mr. Spencer, Mr. Victor, and myself from the Offensive Security Group. And uh, we're here to talk about some cool stuff, Spencer. So what are we going to talk about? Uh, awesome. Another great uh, episode uh, as I figure out how to work the mute button again. Uh, right. It's like the first day on the job. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking about Microsoft uh, and their decision to roll back the office blocking office macros by default. Sad face. Um, I don't we'll get be, that. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. We'll be talking about uh, Brute Retail C4, uh, the uh, commercial C2 framework that's potentially used by uh, a ransomware group or uh, a threat actor group. We're going to talk about Raspberry Robin, also known as QNAP Worm, and some interesting tidbits with that. We're going to talk about leaky S3 buckets and the prevalence of that. And then finally, a story by Dark Reading or some research uh, analysis they did about uh, organizations, firms uh, favoring prevention over response, what that means for the larger uh, security conversation and, and what we think is uh, a result of that uh, and uh, a lot of good stuff. So good episode Sweet. this week. Uh, excited to, to dig in. So. Office macros. Uh, Microsoft had previously announced, you know, that they were going to begin blocking Office macros by default. Those that originate from the internet, right? Uh, they would have uh, the the mark of the web, right? So Microsoft uh, was was, you know, working towards uh, addressing the ransomware problem with this, right, and, and the malware problem with this, and. You know, by all accounts, this was one of the main things that I think was working or we thought as a community, right, this would be a good step forward, a good step in the right direction to making it harder uh, to execute malware on machines and get that initial access. Yeah. Uh, they have since just yesterday uh, announced through very random means. I think it was in the Defender portal or something like that, I believe it was, if I remember right. But it was a very obscure announcement uh, that they are rolling back their decision to block office macros by default. So that's not going to be a thing anymore. Uh, they've, they've gone back on their word a bit. So I guess time will tell. We'll have to see, you know, what the office team, what Microsoft does uh, as a result of this, you know, are they going to make other uh, arrangements to, to secure office macros, make it harder. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll have to see, you know, what comes of this, yeah. but it's a big step backwards, I think. Uh, and it's unfortunate to see. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, man. Um, you know, we are very reactionary and, and very kind of forward looking in the cyber world. Um, and, and so in scenarios like this, when we, when we do get a win from a defensive perspective, we kind of check that box and move on and go, having having to go back and readdress what we already thought was a a mitigated risk is a challenge for folks especially in you know to your point um the only reason this is getting any traction is because 
you know, somebody happened to notice that Microsoft made the statement. And so I think this is going to catch a lot of people by surprise. Um, but yeah, I don't know, man. It, it's a scary thing because um, I, I yeah. would love to know what the ratio of legitimate use to malware is for macro enabled documents, right? Like, I'm sure like Proofpoint or some other email filtering company probably has those statistics. I would be fascinated to look at those because I have to imagine that it is a dramatic disproportionate amount between those, right? Like like you're talking about valid usage versus yeah. the use of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and again, you know, keeping in mind too, and, and I'm just kind of beating up on Microsoft a little bit, but uh, they're, they're a big fluffy target. So it's easy, you mm -hmm. know, but, uh, but you know, it's by default means you can still turn the protection off, right? So if you're one of those companies who just loves macro enabled documents for whatever reason, um, just re-enable it, right? Instead of by default creating a ton of risk for everybody that uses, yep. you know, office. Yep. So it's a bizarre decision, bizarre decision. Yeah. And one of the, uh, an interesting thing I saw on Twitter the other day was, you can actually, through the registry, change the enable content warning message. So instead of saying enable content, you can have it say, like, infect my system or something like that. I thought that was kind of a novel, uh, unique approach to maybe helping users identify uh, these things. Um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. It might be something I look at more in depth uh, in the future. But yeah, it's disappointing to see. It's a step backwards. We'll have to see where this goes. Um, but now, I guess, you know, we don't have to talk about LNK malware as much anymore. I don't know. I mean, it's just... I, it's crazy, man. So so to all of you um, security directors and security managers out there, uh, new item for your risk register. Yep. Right? <laughs> Keep track of this thing because <laughs> it's going to be tough. Yep, for sure. Uh, so next topic, I guess, is uh, Brute Retail C4. So Unit 42, Palo Alto's Unit 42, their, their research group, put out an article this week that uh, discussed uh, what appears to be APT-like uh, threat actor uh, mm -hmm. using a commercial C2 framework called uh, Brute Retail C4. Uh, and they describe how they used it, uh, how uh, they obtained initial access, and they did some reversing of the tool a bit. They were able to uh, extract the, the C2 config uh, and do some additional analysis on it. Uh, there's been some uh, additional research by some of the community to reverse this uh, and share videos by the likes of IPSEC uh, and Immersive Labs has created a tool now to... Uh, extract that config and do some additional analysis. Uh, but essentially, the the TLDR of this story is, uh, and the reason I, I bring it up uh, in this uh, week in review is the f infection chain is very familiar, right? They used an ISO file with a malicious LNK. They used a legitimate OneDrive updater binary and used DLL search order hijacking. And that's how they got the initial access. That, that was the initial uh, infection chain. And the reason they used BRC4 or Brute Retail C4 is because of the uh, evasive uh, mechanics in it. Uh, it's right. claimed to be a very evasive product. Uh, it has a lot of things like uh, encrypted memory uh, and uh, sleep functions to 
kind of evade detection, right? Uh, and avoid getting picked up by EDR and network monitoring, things like that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, zero hits on virus total. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the version, I think the latest version, yeah, uh, is, is fairly low detection rate. Um, and, uh, the other interesting tidbits of this are fairly technical, so I won't go in deep dive. Uh, but the DLLs used or the malicious DLLs that they, that the Thractor used, use something called DLL API proxying, where they take a legitimate DLL and a proxy their malicious one through, uh, or they proxy the legitimate one through the malicious one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of really interesting stuff in this article, uh, that is worth reading and worth looking at, um, because this is kind of a more sophisticated or supposedly a more sophisticated group. So we get to see yeah. kind of what their techniques are and, and procedures, but, uh, an interesting story nonetheless. And I think points to a larger trend that we're seeing where threat actors, groups, ransomware groups are moving away from Cobalt Strike in favor of other open source or commercial C2s, particularly because Cobalt Strike is like the de facto standard for signatures and detection. Right. And they're moving away from that to, to other frameworks. Yeah, and, and it makes sense, right? So if, if I'm writing malware, why would I want to roll my own C2 uh, if if I didn't need to and I could just go steal Cobalt Strikes? And, and I think that mentality and that process was abused to the point where you know, even the lowliest of MDR products and signature sets are detecting Cobalt Strike, right? Like it is, it, it's detected to death at this point. And, yeah. and it's also one of those things where it is, it's an IOC that, that throws flags everywhere, right? It's not like other types of, of detections where it's like, oh, that could be a false positive, right? That might be a, you know, custom piece of software reaching out to AWS. No, no, dude cobalt strike is known so uh so it makes sense right so so i would go ahead if 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 i'm writing detection rules for like a large company i'm going to go ahead and find out what are all the other open source and commercially available c2 frameworks and i'm going to start writing rules for every one of them you know Um, as much as is within reason i want to make this as hard on them as possible right Uh, on the bad guys who are out there like you know stealing c2s and 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 red team tools so yeah yeah, the other interesting thing about this, uh, last thing I'll say about this is, you know, this technique uh, was referenced in 2018 and in as far back as 2016, right? Using uh, archive files like zip files or ISOs and things like that uh, to f- for initial access, right? So yeah. this, it's sad to see this technique still being used. What six years later, we're still yeah, fighting ISOs and zip files, you know, and uh, and those kinds of things. So, yep. Again, not to poo-poo on Microsoft, but you know, it's their operating system, it's their ecosystem, and you know, we we have to, you know, force them to do better and find a way to to move forward and and yeah. try to mitigate some of these things. Agreed. Understood. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. So uh, the next topic uh, is the Raspberry Worm, QNAP Worm, sometimes referred to as. So. Uh, Red Canary has some really good research on this. They were the first ones to kind of spot this and report on it back in September of 2021. Uh, they say, though, that most of the activity that they had seen was in around January 2022. There are some ties to technology and manufacturing sectors. Uh, essentially, this is a, a worm that spreads via USB devices. 
Uh, and according to Microsoft, uh, they have found this on uh, hundreds, it says in the article, hundreds of organizations in various industries, but have yet to kind of act on it or exploit it. Uh, so there's a lot we don't know about this worm, but uh, I bring, you know, I wanted to bring this article up this week for for a couple of reasons. One was something we just talked about, right? This familiar infection chain where we have malicious LNK files, a malicious DLL that gets loaded by something like run DLL 32 or uh, a legitimate Windows binary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, the Red Canary article uh, is a really good... Uh, a really good framework for how to write these types of reports and they share yeah. IOCs and detection opportunities. So really good information. And, and I really enjoy reading their articles because of the way they Agreed. format them, the information yeah. they provide. So yeah, red canary strong. They do a good job on this stuff. Um, so yeah, th- this, this is, I'm still amazed at how, First of all, that QNAP is still getting beat up on, by the way, because they have been they have been beat up on for years. And so the fact that they're still running out there in uh, or even in the ecosystem at all is surprising. But more importantly than that, the fact that we're still distributing malware with USB drives. Like, man. Yeah. You know, what's old is new, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I remember doing uh, social engineering uh, you know, phishing type training at uh, at my last company where we would, you know, drop USB drives in the parking lot. So you'd pick them up and, you know, they'd call home and be like, it'd be ama- you'd be amazed how many people will just pick up a thumb drive and plug it into their computer. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. And even, even after they dis- disabled auto run, which I think was Windows 7, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember. It was Windows, it, it was a predecessor to Windows 10 where they, they no longer auto ran stuff that you plugged in by default. Even then, we would just put like a salary.xls file yeah. with macros enabled and all this other stuff, you know. And so it's just, it, it's wild to see. I mean, there at one point, I, I worked in a very high security environment. And at one point, we were um, JB welding the USB port shut. We would just take <laughs> two-part epoxy and literally just smash it into the USB port where it wouldn't, wouldn't work anymore. So you didn't want to disable them through the BIOS. So it was too much work. <laughs> so I'm, there were, I think there were, there were some limitations on why we couldn't do it that way. It might've been geographical disbursement or whatever it was, but instead of sending instructions on how to properly disable them, we sent, you know, a little box with a, with a, um, uh, a little applicator and, and JB weld. I honestly like that better. I mean, that's way more fun. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Fun, fun times. So hey, that would have prevented this. I just want to point that out. Yeah. $2, $2 at AutoZone. Yeah. Yeah. So the next story is, uh, has to do with cloud and Amazon S3 buckets, essentially leaky buckets, uh, something that we've talked about before. We've mentioned it, uh, when we talked about the Verizon report, uh, it was a big topic in that with the prevalence of you know people moving to the cloud or moving remote and using more cloud resources right you know this is expected to continue especially with smaller firms who don't maybe have the expertise to set up and harden these things and maybe there being some weak uh, default configurations but essentially the tldr of this story is there's an airport that had uh, three terabits terabytes of sensitive data 
uh, open on the internet in a in an open S3 bucket. It had all sorts of personal and private information and things like that. And kind of the the takeaway for me is, uh, you know, we as organizations and uh, defenders uh, have to do a better job securing those buckets, making sure that when we do set something up, we review it, make sure that it's not open and accessible on the internet. Uh, yeah. And we review our kind of footprint on a regular basis, right? Make sure there's no shadow IT going on where somebody in uh, in IT is kind of setting something up on their own uh, without really understanding how to configure it. So, so this actually happened to me on a pen test this week. Um, similar story. And by the way, reading about the stuff that was in that S3 bucket before I changed the subject um, is spooky, right? Like ID cards for airport personnel, like some potentially... Yeah. Like real, real world implications to some of that stuff. But anyway, so I, I'm doing a pen test and I stumbled onto an S3 bucket. No, I'm no, sorry. It was a Microsoft blob that was unsecured. And um, I had no idea what was in it. When I first started looking at it, it was just, um, it was, it was just like pictures of cars and like random stuff. And then as I got into it, I started downloading it. There's a cool tool called um, AZ download, I think. And it'll go out to Azure blobs and, and, you know, it parses the XML for you automatically, super handy anyway. And, uh, and so I started looking through it and, and, and I think one of the support personnel, the IT support personnel was taking pictures with his or her phone of the screen where they were setting passwords. And then they would text it to the person and like, here's your username and password. And so um, there were, there were some domain administrator level credentials that they had reset during that process. And, and it, it, it looked like that he had just automatically backed up all his pictures to this, um, this blob. And, and so from an external wow. pen test, yeah. Uh, you know, we downloaded a, a big portion of the, of the blob, but it was so big and there was so much on it. We, we just, we just stopped and picked up the phone and called the, the client. We're like, dude, you gotta fix that right now. So, and by the way, change, change the password on all the accounts that are in this thing. And so, yeah, what a mess, right? And and to your point, yeah. man, it's a checkbox. It's a checkbox. Even if you didn't have it locked down with conditional access or geolocation blocking or any of that stuff, at the very least, turn off directory listing. You know? Yep. Scary stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it can be hard for, for people who are not familiar with it. Um, but... You know, the thing about it is though, right? So if you're, if you're running and, and I'm not going to pick on whoever this is, but if you, if you're running a, a proper IT security shop, you have asset inventories, you have change control processes. And, and, and by the way, you have penetration tests that go out and, and, and look for this stuff. And I can't tell you how many times on external pen tests, we a either find something the customer didn't know they had that presented an active risk or B found cloud resources that had, that had their data or their name in it that they didn't know existed. I, probably 25% of our external pen tests stumble onto something that fits that category that I just described. Yeah. And it comes down to asset and inventory management, man, and change control yeah. processes. So it's not even a technical problem. It's a yeah. process problem and a policy problem. Yep. For sure. Anyway, a, a Brad rant off. <laughs> <laughs> so the last story, uh, it comes from Dark Reading, and uh, it's titled "Prevention Takes Priority Over Response." Uh, and 
you know, Dark Reading did some uh did a study right and there's statistics and i always like to say you know like 60 percent of statistics are made up so you know take the the numbers and percentages of, of any given report right any study uh with a grain of salt 188 <laughs> it people were inventoried or inventory yeah. that's not the right word we're, we're uh interviewed surveyed, surveyed. yeah that's better <laughs> than my words yeah yeah 188 people were surveyed so so understand that in this context that's a tiny number of people yeah. right yeah. So tiny number of people, however, uh, you know, it does fit with a larger trend we're seeing. And I think that's the, kind of the point of what we wanted to talk about. But, you know, it says in the article, a total of 34% of respondents said they prefer to put 80, 90, or 100% of their resources into prevention over IR, which I thought was interesting. Right. And I think that's the core of what we wanted to talk about was how we prioritize and how companies are prioritizing prevention over detection and response, you know, and, and what's a result of that? Yeah. I, I think this does illustrate uh, an interesting trend for sure. I don't know if this is, you know, since we don't have historical information, I don't know if this is new, but I can tell you that this is different from what we were seeing in the last five to 10 years because cyber insurance, you know, so, so I like to, I like to say that there are three ways you can spend your money in in security space because you will spend money even if you don't choose to do so on purpose you can put you can put your money into incident response right and recovery you can put your money into prevention like dark reading is describing here but you can also put your money in insurance and you can just transfer all that risk off to someone else or you used to be able to one way or another you're going to pay one of those three bills or some variation of that um, I'm glad to see it's heavier toward the prevention because for some time, small to medium businesses had decided that cyber insurance was cheap and we weren't going to worry about, you know, technical security and we weren't going to worry about any of that other stuff, right? The prevention piece just kind of died and everybody just went out and bought cyber insurance. And now you can't do that anymore, right? The cyber insurance has gotten so prohibitively expensive or, or the requirements to obtain it are so high. Um, that, you know, it is much harder and much more prohibitive to get cyber insurance. And so people are now m migrating back to, you know, defending themselves appropriately. Um, yeah. like they should yeah. have been doing all along. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. And one of the things I worry about is, is the lack of resources on response, right? We see oftentimes we come in, we do assessments for organizations, uh, for firms, you know, our recovery and response is an area of uh, a weak point for a lot of companies. A lot of companies don't have a good instant response plan. They haven't tested their backups. So I agree. It's good. We should be spending money and investing in prevention, mm -hmm. but response is, is, is equally as important, right? And being yeah. able to recover, having a plan for that uh, is also important. So, uh, it's interesting to see the layout of the statistics and yeah. what that looks like. I agree. I agree. And, and look, man, cyber is like anything else. It's like fires, right? You're not going to take all of the fire uh, detection systems in your house out because you bought insurance, right? 
and, yeah. and, and you're, and you're not going to build your house out of, you know, flammable materials if you can help it. Uh, and, and so, you know, there are multiple prevention mechanisms or protection mechanisms. And it's like that in the cyber world too, right? You should have probably a larger portion in prevention, but that doesn't mean you get to ignore things like incident response. And I would even say cyber insurance is part of that too. You need all three. Uh, yeah. Now, your risk tolerance, which is determined by your executives, is is gonna is gonna be what determines that scale, right? Do I slide that to fifty percent prevention, twenty five cyber, twenty five IR, whatever it is? I don't really care, but you know that decision is something that happens at the top. But that means they have to understand what that stuff means, right? Because yep. because you know that silver bullet of of cyber insurance. The whole time they're trying to figure out what's going on, your company is not doing whatever it's supposed to be doing, right? And yeah. and so a little bit more in defense, maybe if if that's where you were. Yeah. But yeah, for sure, man. Th- I love talking about this stuff because, in my opinion, these are the conversations that we need to be having. Uh, in addition to the super cool hacker stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, and I and I do like the way that the insurance cyber insurance industry is kind of forcing raising the bar to some extent yes, you know, are. there are there are carriers that are getting out of cyber insurance it's too volatile for some mm-hmm. uh carriers but overall i do believe you know it it's kind of a rising tide that will that will enforce stricter requirements but i do believe that it, it will raise the bar uh for these organizations to yeah. a, at least a bare minimum in order to get insurance so that the, the carrier is protected, but also so that the organization is doing, you know, the bare minimum, at least of what they should be doing, you know, whatever we consider as table stakes, you know, yep. for security nowadays. Uh, so I do, I do like that. And it's something that ransomware has done too. Ransomware is, is, has driven or raised the bar to some extent um, yeah. for, for companies that care at least. <laughs> Sure. No, absolutely, man. And, you know, it, it's getting to a point, though, where whether you care or not, it's going to happen to you, right? Ran- yeah. Ransomware seems to be a if, or rather a when, not if, uh, for a lot of folks, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's fascinating stuff. It really is. So that is it, right? That, that was our last yeah. topic. Awesome. So, so listen, folks, if you, if you liked what you heard or saw today, I guess, depending on where you're at, um, like, you know, share, subscribe, all that stuff helps us out. We want to, we want to get, um, you know, we want to reach as many people as we can with this stuff. So hopefully it helps you out. Um, otherwise go check out our blog offsec.blog, O-F-F-S-E-C and, uh, check us out on, um, wherever you get your podcasts as well, or go check us out on YouTube. We're all over the place now. So have a good weekend, folks. Yeah, everywhere. (laughs) See you, folks.